So, Andrew, we've been very busy kicking off this landmark second season of God versus God, venturing as we have into ancient Egypt. Yep. So I don't know how much time you have, you know, to to read the papers these days. Um, it seems we've heard a lot about artificial intelligence lately. Uh, now I thought, yeah, it might be a good tool for us to help support our cause, uh, achieve our mission, determine which gods are best suited to save us from our our troubled times. So before we got this episode together, I pulled up the old chat GPT and gave the very question that you and I posed in season one of this program, and I said. If all the Greco-Roman gods were to get into a fight with one another, who would ultimately win? Now, I'll be honest. This, If this chat GPT had just spat out our final champion in three seconds, I would have <laughs> felt a little awkward that we spent so much time making that determination last year. Yes. Uh, so thankfully, it did not. Uh, instead, it responded in a, in a somewhat wooden fashion, and I'm quoting here, as an AI language model, I don't have personal opinions, beliefs, or preferences. <laughs> But I can provide information about the power dynamics and abilities of the gods as described in mythology. Yeah, thanks a lot, buddy. We can do that. We, we've got <laughs> yeah, yeah, that part covered. So, you know, not terribly insightful. But the ending of its response did cause me to raise an eyebrow, I guess. It said, and again, okay. I'm quoting, Ultimately, it's difficult to say which god would win in a fight, as much would depend on the circumstances of the battle and the alliances that might form between the gods. It's okay. possible that a lesser known or less powerful god could surprise everyone and come out on top. End of quote. Wow. So in that sense, I think it was kind of perceptive, I have to admit. Yeah. This uh, you know, unthinking, unfeeling robot might be onto <laughs> something. So I couldn't resist going a little bit further. Uh, so I did ask uh, about our our previous episode, season 2 episode 1, and right. just wondered whether Ra or Hather would would be victorious. Now, of course, once again, ChatGPT dodged the question, but there's another notable conclusion in its response. Quote, it's worth noting that the ancient Egyptians did not necessarily see their gods as being in competition with one another, but rather as complementary figures who each held important roles in maintaining the balance of the world. Therefore, it may not be accurate to compare Ra and Hather in terms of power as they represented different aspects of life and the cosmos. End of quote. Wow. Now, First of all, the gall that we're that to suggest we're asking the wrong question. I was, I was <laughs> yeah, no, fairly no, no. offended by that. And and that's why just to dodge. Exactly. You should have stayed. You should have stayed on that. Right. Uh, but the suggestion yeah. that that this podcast is in any way not accurate—that is frankly <laughs> stunning and and perhaps proof right. of how much progress AI really has to uh, to make before it gets to the big time. So, no doubt. I do not doubt the notion uh, of Egyptian gods being complementary figures rather than competitors. You pointed that out in our season premiere. I think that's true. But I mean, come on. We're not about to yeah. change from God versus God to, you know, God, another God maintaining harmonic balance. <laughs> right. Well, I, I think some of the stories in this episode may may undercut the AI point. I think that's right. That's correct. At least this, the episode two, we're about to enjoy uh, as, as anything but harmonic balance. Uh, right. So we will see that. So I think that'd be too boring. So, you know, thank you, Mr. Chatbot. Appreciate it. But uh, <laughs> good try. Hopefully when your big brother GPT-4 is is released, you'll have something a little bit more useful to contribute. But, uh, you know, on the plus side, until then, Andrew, further proof that you and I continue to provide an essential service that even oh, yeah. the most newfangled technology can fails to duplicate. All right. So anything to add before we jump in uh, to our episode? No, I think you've taken us in a strange new direction. <laughs> right. but, well, well, it's only about over. to get stranger. 
Okay. Uh, well, then let's let's dive in. So here we are, God versus God, season two, episode two, Osiris versus Tefnut. And as always, may the best God win. Yes. We're going to start with Osiris. So Lord of the Dead and Rebirth, both of those things at once. Now, the primary focus is that connection between life and death, the big stuff, including the afterlife and resurrection. We'll hear about that. But it's only the beginning because this is... As Egyptian gods tend to have a few sort of divine side hustles, uh, Osiris is also the god of fertility, agriculture, and vegetation. So he's walking that fine line between existential human destiny and I don't know, broccoli, I guess, <laughs> the middle ground there. <laughs> Spelt, pharaoh, I don't know. Uh, so I, I'm going to show you, as we did last week, I'm going to show you an image of uh, Osiris, uh, and then I would like for you to describe for our listeners Excellent. what you see. Again, taking advantage of our audio-only format. <laughs> right, yes. Uh, so Full that advantage. Can, that's right. So I'm going to share, and this is the god Osiris. So why don't you okay. just tell the listeners what you see, give us the description, and then I'll, 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 I'll comment back on, on what you've observed. All right, so we, uh, we, we have a man here, and... Uh, it's his face is green as are his hands. He's yes. dressed in all white. Yes. He's got that familiar Egyptian uh, pose where the shoulders are facing us, yes. but have a profile of uh, of the face. Mm -hmm. He's got a very a kind of a, a conical hat, a little bit of a, a Pope ish looking hat. Right. Right. Um, and he's holding two different uh, objects in his hands. One yes. looks like a, a hook. Yes. And and one um maybe a feather duster or <laughs> a, a, some sort of it's a stick with 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 some I, I believe they're their feathers coming off it, but I'm not not sure some tassels mm. yes. perhaps. Uh it's got a striking uh red belt and it's yes. standing on a little podium. This is maybe a little height challenge. Yeah, and look at the size of those feet. I mean this isn't gonna come up yeah. in any of the rest of the episode, but that's he's got some <laughs> some serious feet on yeah, so. proportions, yeah. He, he's he's yeah, that's very happened. very well observed. So uh yeah, I think you hit all the, the, the fine points, Andrew, and I and I'll kind of talk you through. So you mentioned the green skin. Yep. Um, you know, for the Egyptians, that is the color of rebirth, makes perfect sense given how vegetation comes back to life. So He's most commonly depicted with that uh, that very that nice green hue. Uh, you mentioned the the white uh, garments, so that of course right. is mummy form. That is the, the they will learn the first instance of being mummified and wrapped in linens. Um, it did make him something of a fashion trailblazer back in the Egyptian world. We're gonna we're gonna hear there was a very good reason why that he needed to wear that. Uh, usually he's seen, you know, we see him here kind of from the, the top of the chest down in that that sort of mummy form. Uh, sometimes it's even only from the waist down in some in some images. So it's more of like a kind of a summer mummy look, you know, kind of right. a you wouldn't wear it after like Egyptian Labor Day uh, in whatever no. you know, month of the Coptic calendar that would fall in. Um, so we'll learn. Yeah, not not a fashion choice only, but had a very good practical reason for that. We'll get to that. Um, you did not mention the Pharaoh's beard. So he's got oh, right, uh, right. standing from the chin, this sort of maybe what, six or seven inch long kind of chin beard with a slight curl familiar right. to us now in these kinds of images. And I know you're probably asking yourself, well, Matt, weren't the Egyptians notoriously meticulous shavers? And that is true. They were, I, I but the Pharaohs know. were the exception with this extended uh, chin beard. Okay. Uh, so once again, Osiris very much being a trailblazer, he was the first to rock this kind of what they call the Pharaoh's beard. Um, by many accounts, the Pharaohs afterward, many of them would, would grow that out as an right. homage to Osiris if they couldn't quite pull it off, they would just do a false one, make it out of metal or something. So 
that was their that was their their symbol that we are joined to Osiris from the very beginning. Also, a gender blind custom. So there were female pharaohs, right? And yeah. they also had they rocked the sort of false pharaoh's beard, usually made of metal. Um, now, since ancient Egypt, of course, this has fallen out of favor, uh, apart from a brief exception of the band Lincoln Park in the early two thousands, who, who brought it back for about a year. But since then, yeah. very much of his time. Uh, maybe maybe we'll bring it back. There you go. Along with a new god. (laughs) You can say nothing else about the show. It is all about being trendsetters. Uh, You mentioned the the crown. Now, that is called an Atef crown. Sort of, you mentioned it being almost a sort of papal, proto-pope type type crown. This was uh, very distinctive, almost like a big white water bottle. It's got these sort of rainbow-colored wings on the sides. Yeah. Um, Those are actually two ostrich feathers. Now, very colorful, a little flamboyant maybe for my taste, but I suppose if you're... You already got, you know, green skin and like a half mummy look going. Why not go all the way? You know, yeah. take it to the limit. Uh, you pointed out the two objects, the crook and and flail. So the crook, of course, uh, is that sort of shepherd's hook that is used yeah. to guide the sheep. Um, that is that is symbolic, of course, of his kingship. He is leading the flock. He is the leader of Egypt. Uh, the flail, which you thought may be a feather duster. Uh, he was not the god of, of, of housekeeping. Uh, okay. So it was, in fact, uh, a flail for... Two purposes. First, for fertility, because you could use that to thresh the grain. Okay. Um, right. But you could also use it to to symbolize your control. You could use it to whip people because it's still uh, it was a weapon. So okay. By holding these two, the pharaoh is essentially saying, "Yes, I will be your leader." But if you get out of line, I will also has it not hesitate to issue some. I don't know the Egyptian word, but what we would call whoop ass, I think, is is the term. Uh, he's ready yeah. to do that. The belt, the red belt. Um. I have no explanation for it. Maybe just to pop a color, you know, to 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 complete the outfit, to tie it all together. <laughs> Maybe just to keep his mummy <laughs> pants up, but uh, that that's all. But yeah, all together, it's quite a look. A lot of symbolism going on uh, with Osiris. So well done. A um, little bit of lineage. So Osiris was really old school. You know, from those first sort of four generations uh, from the beginning. His father was Jeb, the god of the earth. His mother was Nut, god of the sky. Of course, their mother was yep. Tefnut, whom you'll be discussing in the second segment of the program, which means we have one contestant in this episode competing against his own grandmother, which I believe is the first on this program, yes. if I'm not mistaken. Yes, so we're, we're, we're blazing some trails uh, this time around. Uh, right. So Osiris's parents, Jeb and Nut, they were the grandchildren of Ra, the sun god. And listeners will remember that from our, our previous episode. Um Osiris is the eldest son. He's got four siblings, and two of whom are very notable. So he's got his sister, Isis, who also will become his wife, very old school, and his younger brother, Set, who is the god of chaos. Now, both of them are going to factor into the myth of Osiris, which we'll hear about shortly. So let's get to the myth. Uh, Osiris was not, as I said, merely a god, but a god king, uh, a ruler of the land, and, and, and very much beloved he was in Egypt. Uh, had a very, really striking earthly form. He cut a very handsome figure. Of course, had that cool Lincoln Park chin beard, had the crazy ostrich headdress we talked about for added style points, but didn't just have the sort of outside ancient Egyptian panache. He also on the inside had real charm, real charisma, uh, and maybe most importantly, he was recognized for having just this rare inner wisdom. Um, from the beginning of his reign, Osiris, very savvy politician to come into the throne, uh, had obviously, despite very royal, uh, privileged upbringing, he believes in real reform from day one. So in a bold first move, the first day he becomes king, he outlaws cannibalism. 
So <laughs> really comes out swinging politically. Yeah, he's, he's very, very progressive, <laughs> which apparently at the time was a bit yeah. of a problem. So progress. Uh, yeah. Guys, you know, I know I'm new here, but we got, we got to cool it with the whole beating each other thing. It's kind of barbaric, not very nutritious. We, come on. We're better than this. So, but Osiris is not just a, an anti-cannibal crusader. He's, he's, you know, he's a problem solver. He's a doer. So to replace that, the questionable dietary habits of his people, he guides them to the arable land. Uh, he blesses everybody who would grow their own bountiful harvests, and everybody does. So there begins his connection to fertility, agriculture, vegetarian <laughs> vegetation. He also brings this new level of culture to Egypt. So he goes on this voyage around the known world, has to, heads to Europe, goes to the Near East, and brings home all the best in arts and culture back to Egypt. Uh, also, to his credit, Osiris is a bit of a feminist. So when he leaves on his world tour, he puts Isis, his sister wife, yep. in charge. And uh, she holds down the fort and does a good job. Uh, it's hard to imagine this scenario in contemporary American politics where there's a president uh, who just says, hey, guys, I'm, I'm headed overseas on a diplomatic mission, but while I'm away, I'm going to put Isis in charge. No. <laughs> no. It didn't, wouldn't sound right. And the people Doesn't would translate. say, I, I don't know. The president says, no, no, it's fine. Isis is my wife. <laughs> People say, okay, uh, that sounds better. And the president says, and she's my sister. <laughs> says, well, maybe the other Isis may you not be stop, so stop all your head. <laughs> That's right. So King Osiris is away. Queen Isis is back home, does a perfectly good job upholding his, his high standard of virtue. But little does she know, there's a sinister plot underfoot to take out the king and seize the throne. It's being hatched by Set, who is the, the god of chaos, the younger brother of both Isis and Osiris. Now, Set is very jealous of his brother, the king. Sources differ a little bit on exactly why. So Plutarch tells us Set is jealous because, you know, big brother has it all. He's got fortunes, the peaceful reign over Egypt. So he just covets the throne for himself. Yeah, and Fair enough. It's sibling rivalry. We've seen plenty of it in our day. This podcast certainly no stranger to it. Sure. Um, also remember Set is the guyland or the is the god of violent chaos and war. So of course, you know, he's gonna want to mix things up a bit. <laughs> uh also mention that Set bears a resemblance to multiple animals. So including the hyena, the jackal, the pig, and the fox. So he's uh just say he's an eye-catching fellow. Yeah. So sibling jealousy is Plutarch's explanation, but the pyramid texts, the ancient texts, have a different explanation for why Set is so angry at his older brother. Now, according to that text, Set is upset at Osiris for sleeping with his wife, <laughs> Nephthys. Now, Osiris, in truth, may have done this, but in his defense, Nephthys did pull a fast one on Osiris, assumed the form of his actual wife, Isis. Oh. It's said she may maybe deployed a little bit of wine in the process, and did a little switch-o-change-o. So, that sneaky union did lead to the birth of Anubis, right. who's this love child, and Set, who is, of course, the cuckold, not, didn't appreciate the whole thing. He was offended. Yeah. Now, again, keep in mind, these are both brothers who are married to their own sisters. Yeah, they're, they're both their sisters. Yeah, There's not a, not a ton of moral high ground to be had here, but, you know, as, as usual with these older generation folks, it's it's complicated. So, and you, you can picture Osiris kind of making his own excuse for the infidelity. He's like, hey, man, I thought I was working it with the sister I married, not the other <laughs> sister. So not, yeah. back off. In any case, for whatever the reason he's furious, Set is is very upset at his older brother. So he sets out, if you will, uh, to have his older brother killed in order to himself take over as Pharaoh. So according to Plutarch, uh, Set gets 72 accomplices to plot the assassination of Osiris. Nice. It's a big production. Yeah. 
Uh, and believe it or not, it's hard to find that many willing conspirators. It takes a lot of work because people love King Osiris. He's a good king. Right. His approval, approval ratings are off the charts. But he goes to the dark corners of Egypt. He finds 72 such men and gets to plotting. So here's the plot. It's just before his brother is about to come back home from his trip. You know, remember, he's backpacking around Europe. He's doing his right. royal gap year and whatever. Uh, he said announces he's going to have a big welcome home party. He's going to invite all the upper crust of Egypt. Oh, that's nice. So the big day finally arrives. The guests are all there. King Osiris makes his triumphant return. There's food. There's wine. I suspect there's probably some of that Egyptian beer that we talked about. Uh, set as the host reveals that he has planned a party game. Uh, sounds great, right? He's the host on a kid creative, keep things moving. So he reveals this very unusual party favor. It is a coffin, but not just any coffin. It is, it's been made from the highest quality materials in all of Egypt. And we'll recall from the last episode, Egyptians, they take their voyage to the afterlife yeah. very seriously. So when they see this coffin, they think that is one smooth ride to the hereafter. I want to nice. get a piece of that. And Set makes this big announcement. That coffin will be a prize tonight for one lucky winner. So here's the deal. Every guest here gets to step inside the coffin and lay down. If and only if the coffin fits you perfectly, the coffin is yours. So everyone's excited. They all line oh, up. Oh, yeah, that's an old party game, sure. Classic. I mean, everybody, <laughs> if the coffin fits. Yeah, that's, that's right. So everybody clamors to the front, gets in line, gives it a go. But wouldn't you know it, not one of the guests has just the right fit that they need to win. So in the end, King Osiris, of course, takes his turn, lays down, and wouldn't you know it, sure enough, he is the perfect fit. And he's lying down, and he thinks to himself, <laughs> you know, it's almost like somebody made this coffin custom fit for me. And there is the sound of the shutting coffin. <laughs> you guessed it. At that moment, Set, the god of chaos, springs forward, closes the coffin on his brother, immediately seals it with molten lead. And then he orders the coffin to be dumped into the Nile River where his brother will be left to die a terrible death. So all happens in just a matter of, of a moment. Wow. So his goons come, they grab the coffin, dump it into the river. And just like that, Set becomes the new king of Egypt. Now, I do have a few thoughts on this plan. First of all, right. King Osiris clearly has terrible security around him. <laughs> yes, this yeah. This is uh, nowhere near the Secret Service. No. Uh, also not sure Set really needed 72 people to pull this off. I mean, maybe no. like five or six for the muscle, but I mean, who are the rest? Like the party planners, the, the yeah, they, 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 yeah, the caterers, yeah. <laughs> valet They're parking not. for the, the camels or whatever. I don't know. Uh, maybe overstaffed it, but in any case, the plot works. King Set is now assumed control, begins his reign of chaos while King Osiris is floating in this sealed coffin down the river. Now, understandably, Isis, who's now the former queen, very upset by this this course of action. So she flees the palace, begins to search the river for her husband and his, his fancy coffin. Now, she is a goddess. She does have magical powers. So she may be able to heal him, but she's got to find him first. Right. And the Nile is a big river, so she's on the hunt for some time. And some say she runs into Anubis on her journey. That's the love child from the other affair who has since yep. been abandoned by his parents. And she raises him on her own. Which is a class nice. act, I thought. Uh, in the meantime... Back in Egypt, the new king and god of chaos, really living up to his name. The king set administration is totally anarchy. He's undoing all the good work of his predecessor. It's it's reminiscent of America in early 2017. <laughs> uh, so back in the Nile, finally Isis eventually gets word that the coffin has been washed ashore in a small town outside of Egypt over in Phoenicia called Byblos. Now, the coffin is stuck inside a tamarisk tree, which has grown all the way around it. And depending who you ask, it has a special, very special fragrance to it. Uh -huh. Some even say it glows 
which really makes you wonder why they couldn't have found it sooner. But eventually, <laughs> they do find it. Isis has the coffin removed from this, this glowing tamarisk tree. Her husband, Osiris, is still inside, but his royal green color, of course, is faded to a, a sickly gray. Uh-huh. And he's as good as dead. So, But he's not quite dead. She oh. uses her, her magic powers, not only heals her husband, but while she's on a roll, gets him to impregnate her. Nice. In a rare posthumous conception, <laughs> which eventually will lead to the birth of Horus the Younger as the story continues. Right. I mean, for for Osiris, a pretty amazing turn there. One minute he's in his coffin, good as dead, and the next minute he's, you know, enjoying a surprise conjugal visit. So <laughs> worked out pretty well. Right. So word gets back around to Egypt. King said, of course, is, is furious. Here's the whole development. He is understandably upset. The plot has gone awry. Uh, so he places an order in the kingdom. He says, as soon as Iris, Isis and Osiris set foot back on Egyptian soil, first of all, she's going to be arrested. And secondly, the big brother, the deposed king, well, he makes a demand to his goons. And he says, guys, do something about it. And I imagine their response was akin to that of Sean Connery in Michael Bay's 1995 film, The Rock. Like what? Kill him again? That's right. Set says, yes, kill him again. <laughs> And this being ancient Egypt, that's the thing you can do. It's exactly what happened. So with the health of his goons, sure enough, Set violently does kill Osiris. Uh, Not only that, he has his corpse dismembered, cut into 14 pieces. Yeah, don't want to repeat. That's right. He's got to learn his lesson. So takes the 14 pieces, has them dispersed to all different locations throughout Egypt so that Isis will not be able to find him again, or at least not find him in one piece. Right. Isis, however, is not deterred. She runs off, escapes arrest, and with the help of her sister Nephthys and her son Horus the Younger, goes on another quest, a great quest, even bigger than the first one, to hunt down all the body parts. Except one. She's unable to recover her husband's phallus. Now, Set, as he was undertaking the, the dismemberment, he had cast the uh, the royal unit, I guess, into the uh, <laughs> the depths of the Nile, where it was promptly eaten by fish. Now, there are some accounts that say Isis created a new member for him from a tree. Probably not the kind of wood he was hoping for. (laughs) Uh, Other accounts, she just sort of magically grows a new one for him. In any case, she gathers up all the other pieces, wraps them again in linen cloth to hold everything together. So there's the reason he needs to become the first mummy, just to keep those pieces together. Osiris is then brought back to life for a second time, which is great, but... He's just not the same after everything he's been through. So being king again, just out of the question. He's that ship has sailed. Yeah. Right. So he he transitions to a post-retirement role. And he works in the underworld where he becomes the god and judge of the dead. Now I'd say that's yeah. a pretty good second act. I mean, you 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 know, you hear about star athletes becoming broadcasters, ex-presidents who are setting up libraries or selling weird digital trading cards, whatever they do. (laughs) (laughs) This former king, he sets his own course, takes a deep breath, pulls up his mummy pants, secures his wooden wiener, and (laughs) takes a new gig in the hereafter. So the story does continue a little bit. King Set ends up going after Isis and Horus the Younger to seek his revenge again for reanimating his his older brother. We're going to save that for another episode. I'm sure that will come along down the road, so we won't spoil that. But... um, Needless to say, that reassembly of Osiris's body parts, that begins this custom of, of mummification and really became that for not just pharaohs, but all the, the nobles who could afford right. it. They would be wrapped in linens. They would be buried facing the east where the sun would rise so they could rise up and join the sun god Ra on his daily journey to and from the underworld, as you, Andrew, so eloquently described in episode one. Yep. 
that was for the nobles who could afford it. If you were a commoner and could not afford it, they would essentially just leave your corpse out in the desert for two months. <laughs> <laughs> it's a significant step down. Yeah. So again, the, the rich folks get the cool outfits made of fine Egyptian linen and the poor folks get left out in the sun to just become a human raisin. <laughs> so uh-huh. the afterlife is the final chapter. That latter day kingdom of Osiris was there. And we mentioned this in the last episode, the afterlife yeah. in the ancient Egypt was really nice, nice place. So this retirement job was vastly superior to like, being a Walmart greeter, for instance. Um, in the Egyptian afterlife, unlike Walmart, people had to meet a certain standard of quality to get in. So once you get there, after death, you face judgment from a tribunal right. of 42 divine judges. Right. Again, I mean, nothing small. 72 assassins, 42 judges. These get, the Egyptians, they go big. They don't mess yeah. around. And the judges posed the question to the recently deceased and they asked, did you live your life in accordance with Mat? That's M-A-A-T. You mentioned mm-hmm. it, I think, in the first one. That yep. is, looks like a typo of my first name, but no, it's very different. Uh, goddess who represents the concepts of truth, balance, order, harmony, and morality, yeah. justice, all that. So it couldn't be farther from me, but the A and the T <laughs> make a big difference. If the answer is yes, if you have lived in accordance with Mat, congratulations, you are welcomed into the kingdom of Osiris in the afterlife. But if the answer is no, not so good. You are thrown into a soul-eating demon named Amit. I'm sure we'll get to Amit at some point. Just for a visual, picture like the back end of a hippopotamus, the front end of a lion, and the head of a crocodile. So right. scary stuff all around. So, And it doesn't even happen right away. If you're condemned, you're not just tossed aside. You are subject to some terrifying punishment first before your soul is devoured. Now, this did become an influence on the early Christians as they were working out their own version of hell for... Yeah. The Bibles, they were, you know, they're in the design process, they're storyboarding and all. Right. And they borrowed from this. But the big difference is in the Egyptian afterlife, once you were devoured by Amit, that's it. Yeah. Game over. I mean, unlike the sort of eternal damnation of Christian hell, you are eliminated. It's over. So in a way, the Egyptian fate for the damned is actually kind of better than the hell we're we're accustomed to. Yeah, sure. Uh, and so that in this tradition, that's what passes for good news. Like, you know what? You don't make the cut. Sure, you'll get tortured, eaten by this terrifying triple play of hungry animals. But hey, at least at some point, much like each episode of God versus God, the ordeal <laughs> does finally end. So very good sort of postscript. Uh, the end of their of the cult. So Isis and Osiris had a cult together. Uh, it was a couple's cult, which makes sense, given all they, they went through together. Yeah. Um, when Osiris transitioned to the afterlife, his body was left behind and his body parts were again dispersed throughout Egypt. So they sort of re, uh, re, redistributed him throughout yeah. the land. So because of that, there's a lot of temples all throughout the land who claim to have a part of the body. So like there's one town that claims they have his heart, another one, several who claim to have a leg or two. I'm not sure how that <laughs> math works out. Right. Yeah. Uh, sort of an odd sort of franchise model for, for a grave site. But the main temple of Isis and Osiris was at uh, Philae. Um, the cult had a very long run, so it was it was operational until the 450s CE, so well after the imperial decrees that the the pagan gods had to go. Yeah, um, good 50 or 60 years later, so they they were the last major temple to close in Egypt, and it's still there. There's still some pretty decent ruins. Uh, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and nice. it's, uh, it's looking pretty good. So if season two revenues for God versus God hit our targets, maybe we record our finale there uh, right. on location. Nice, yeah. yeah. So. To, to wrap it all up, uh, to coin a phrase, uh, Osiris was you know clearly a very accomplished god king, big leader, was willing to take chances from outlawing cannibalism to 
culture, agriculture, and for all those fine achievements, really got a pretty raw deal. And then he was killed not once but yeah. twice. But, Family. you know, thanks to his devoted sister wife, Isis, and her magic powers, he was also twice reborn. Or at least, you know, most of him was, <laughs> except the uh, the part that became fish food. Uh, but he had a really nice final act in the afterlife, had a hell of a run among worshipers as the last cult standing. And, you know, I'd say if nothing else, he made green skin, an ostrich crown, and a summer mummy linen <laughs> look pretty damn good. Yes, he did. And that is Osiris, or Excellent. our first contestant. All right. That very good job. A lot of things we learned. And I think we figured out what that belt was. It's It's a structural belt. Actually, <laughs> not holding. Guess, yeah, that's right. It's it's holding together more than the outfit, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's working hard. Right. Very good. Well, we will take our break there, and uh, let's see you on the other side for round two and get into Tefnut right there after the break. All right. All right, and thank you, Matt. Of course, this episode, as you mentioned, I have Tefnut. Tefnut. Now, Tefnut is uh, not a household name, I, I gather, <laughs> in contemporary USA, I don't believe. Um, but she is an important, complicated, and interesting primordial goddess from the Egyptian pantheon. And uh, as you mentioned, the grandmother of our first contestant in this right. episode. So. Tefnut was primarily known as the goddess of moisture, uh, which, you know, at first hearing maybe sounds a little bit like an odd sphere <laughs> yeah. of influence for, for a goddess. But really, this is associated with things like the morning dew, mm. rain, humidity, all which are, you know, nice pantheistic nature deity roles. Sure. And, uh, I'm going to get into how I'm not going to get into how the Egyptians claim that Tefnut made fresh, pure water uh, because, you know, we're all supposed to be drinking more water. And I don't think uh, the rather graphic description of how this is made is going to encourage anybody to be fully hydrated. So uh, that's quite <laughs> that to your imaginations or, or the Google <laughs> Google machine. OK, uh, but, you know, every pantheon needs a rain deity mm-hmm. uh, and. Tefnut, in addition to this, was also associated with the moon, the sun, and Sirius, uh, which, of course, uh, was known as the dog star in mm. Greece. Yep. Uh, and here I'm going to do the picture thing again, uh, asking Matt to describe uh, this artistic rendering of Tefnut, kind of help the audience get a little idea of uh, what she looked like. So. All right. So I see the image now. Uh, it looks like Tefnut has, again, green skin. Yes. Not unlike her uh, grandson. So very resplendent in that green skin tone. I'm seeing, it uh, looks like a, a headdress similar to what we talked about in uh, the previous episode with the sort of sun disc uh, wrapped in what looks like yes. a snake. Uh, so some sort of sun emblem there. Uh, it looks like her her face appears to be some sort of wildcat, like a lion of some kind, lioness, uh, I'm guessing. Yeah, you're but, exactly right, yeah. Okay, very good. Has that kind of profile. Sort of a prominent snout, if you will, uh, and that's sort of either either a hairdo or a headdress, kind of coming down uh, in black. I'm seeing a sort of strapless red dress, uh, almost sort of somewhere between a cocktail party and a formal uh, gown. Really, really, you know, you could, you could we could be equally comfortable at the SAG Awards or even the Oscars, depending on the <laughs> accessories. Yeah, it's, it's very fashionable. 
very nice in red. Uh, and she looks like she's holding some sort of staff. Uh, doesn't not, not a whole lot of markings on the staff. Looks pretty straightforward. And then in the left hand appears to be holding an ank, if that I'm not mistaken. So that's all I can see. How did yeah. I do? That is excellent, Matt. You were, you've gotten, I think, all of that correct. Right. Uh, we also we also have Shu with her, which is her husband brother in blue. Mm-hmm. He's got the ostrich feather. Uh, so you can kind of see where Osiris uh, gets that. This is from an ancient wall painting mm-hmm. uh, in, in Egypt where, again, Tefnet is shown in the green, human body form, and the lion's head, and that sun desk, which is called the Uraeus, mm-hmm. uh, floating above her head. Uh, with the snake around it, again, symbolizing the power of the pharaoh. So this yes. painting is actually currently in the Louvre in Paris, oh. should you want to visit. And I'm so, sure the French acquired it through completely above board. <laughs> above means. board, yeah. Yes. yeah. I'm, I'm sure they still have the receipts. Uh, <laughs> you know, And I'm also going to give you some epithets uh, for Tefnut uh, that um, just to give you an idea of how the Egyptians thought of her. So one epithet epithet was tefnut the great Hmm. the honorable one okay also goddess from the south oh (laughs) nice (laughs) and she of moisture yeah she of moisture so uh you know and i guess in addition to these sort of more uh rain types of moisture she was also associated with spit uh, which will you will recall perhaps from uh her birth story which i mentioned in our first episode yes and in that story, Tefnut and her brother Shu, uh, who was the god of air, are born after uh, Autumn Ray, the creator god, god of the sun, in uh, what we'd call Seinfeldian terms, <laughs> ceases to be master of his domain. Yes, yes. And commits the very act, first act of onanism, and then gestates the twins uh, in his beak. Um, <laughs> because, of course, he has the head of a falcon. Of course, yes. Of course, uh, as, as you'll recall. So eventually, Shu is propelled out of Ra's nose. Tefnut is spit out of his mouth, beak, and um, that gets to one of the etymologies for Tefnut, is that it is the sound of someone expectorating a good-sized loogie. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The onomatopoeia yeah. of the act of spitting. <laughs> uh, now, the main eth- etymology, at least in polite circles, is that it, it means that water. Mm. Uh, but there's, you know, one more candidate, uh, in the etymology, which is from the Egyptian word tefen, uh, as, as of course, you know, yes. uh, would meaning orphan. <laughs> and that gets to an alternate origin story for Tefnut and Shu, where they, similar to Ra, are actually self-created in the primordial water of the Nun, uh, waiting inert, floating in the water until Ra finally creates that Mount Ben-Ben little strip of land right. where everything starts off. But in either case, uh, the mythology agrees that Tefnut and Shu are the firstborn uh, female and male entities uh, in the universe. And, and Ra only kind of firmly sets into the male form after his his children are born. Hmm. Um, so as children, Tefnut and Shu were inseparable. Uh, they'd play together all the time, often taking the form of lion cubs hmm. um, in order to you know play around as playful cubs under the watchful Cyclops eye of, of their father, Ra. And they're such a pair that Tefnut and Shu together had their own pair nickname, hmm. 
in ancient Egypt on par with, you know, Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez's uh, Benifer. Right. Unfortunately, uh, you know, they, for them, uh, tabloids were still a few millennia off. So we don't get a shoe nut, <laughs> a tef shoe. <laughs> tef shoe. Uh, <laughs> instead, we, they were called rooty. Uh, but that is the word for lion cubs. So they're, they're, the two were called the rooties. Not um, quite as catchy for like a New York Post headline, but uh, no, no. Rooty. Again, you know, the, the the media has not reached its full full development uh, back <laughs> in those times. Um, now, again, they're under the watchful eye of their father until they disappeared, and Autumn Ray has to send that single eye to go after them. Right. Um, and from Tefnut and Shu's perspective, you know, they're lost in this nothingness the whole time. And at first, it was a fun and play you know uh they're just off on an adventure until they realize that they were lost and and they become afraid because you know this is still very very much the start of creation and there's no landmarks there's no mountains there's no streams yeah i guess not there's no stars there's no suns it's just <laughs> all kind of sameness um and so when that eye of Ra finally finds tefnut and shu uh they're actually grown up by this point oh my so either so much time has passed that that they have grown up or the stress of the experience has, has caused them to to mature. Um, and so when they return to, to Ra, this is when Ra gives Tefnut that extra aspect of being the goddess Mahat. So you mentioned uh, Mahat in the in the first half of this episode. Yeah. And that is actually just another aspect of Tefnut as as the goddess of truth. Mm. And Shu also gets um, an aspect as the life giver, as he's already the god of air, so he also becomes the god of breath, of, of giving breath to people. That makes sense. So, uh, so at this point, creation really just kind of starts to take off. Uh, you know, we get the tears of Ra uh, becoming humans, but that's a little bit of a problem because at this time, there, there's really no Earth. Hmm. There's just little Mount Ben-Ben in a sea of swirly whirly nothingness so uh but this is soon rectified because at the same time tefnut and shu first female and male entities in the universe are now adults mm -hmm. and you know they do what comes naturally to any primordial brother sister pair of gods sure. of course <laughs> uh they marry and procreate the immediate result of this union being two children uh geb or jeb uh the god of the earth who is going to become the father of Osiris right and Nut uh the goddess of the sky uh who will be uh, his his mother uh and so now everybody has a little bit more breathing space or at least they would <laughs> um because there's another problem hmm. it comes up because Nut and Geb are uh precocious uh brother sister gods and their pairing comes even more naturally to them hmm. And so Geb and Nut are immediately locked in an embrace that they will not let go of. Okay. So the, the earth and the sky are just smashed together in a permanent sexual congress. Oh my goodness. That is so, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So so this this is this is a problem, not because Tefnut and Shu, you know, have any sort of anti incest feelings, obviously. No. Those have not yet been invented, clearly. Yes, yeah, or or other Victorian hangups because we were <laughs> We're a long, long way until the Victorian age. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the, the embrace between the heavens and the earth is so tight that there is no room for any other life to exist on earth. Mm. 
So it is Shu, the god of air, who is forced to separate Geb, the earth, and Nut, the heavens, to allow life on earth to exist. Hmm. Uh, you know, honestly, you know, Shu is air, Tefnet is moisture. Uh, they go between uh, the heavens and the earth. So that, you know, it's just really science. It's the hard science. Yeah. As, as, <laughs> as our listeners have become accustomed to on this program. Yes. Yeah. So that, that that's how that, that started. Um, yep. And so then, you know, we had the rule of raw on earth, as well as the rebellion of the humans that was violently put down, uh, as we discussed in our last episode. But now by some accounts, there's a period where Shu takes the reins as ruler of Egypt hmm. uh, with Tefnut as his queen. Uh, but again, after some time, there is again a rebellion, hmm. uh, which is something that's going to keep coming up. And this rebellion, according to a temple text that was discovered in the Sinai Peninsula area, um, the the rebellion was led by the sons of Apophis. And you may recall Apophis is that serpent god of of chaos uh, that lives in the underworld. So the sons of Apophis uh, opposed Shu. And, and Shu gathered together all the gods for the defense of Egypt. And then, so this is a four-sided shrine. So just as he's gathering together the gods, it, you know, says, go to the next wall. And then that next wall is completely uh, obliterated and there's no, there's no text on it. So we don't know what happens. Oh, man. <laughs> we just a cliffhanger. Yeah, it's a cliffhanger other than so the, the whole battle scene is wiped out. But then then it picks up after the battle and and, and she was victorious. OK, so there's like a missing third reel of the film. And yes, pick up is. the conclusion. All right. Yeah, and they, they, they cut that for costs. Um, <laughs> and, but she has been victorious. But apparently this. It's been a big battle that we missed because mm. uh, this effort has cost him, and Shu has to retreat to the ev- to the heavens in order to to recover. Mm. And so Tefnut sh- uh, stays behind uh, to rule Egypt herself, uh, much like her her granddaughter will later. Right. Right. Uh, but there is a problem here. Geb, her son, god of the earth, has been waiting for this day ever since he has been separated by his father from his wife nut um he's been looking to take his re- revenge sure so so geb seizes the palace seizes his mother by force takes the throne and locks tefnut in the palace with him for 9 days as a storm rages outside uh brought about by tefnut and her rage yikes so you know there's little snippets and different versions of what happens next in, in these different texts. But apparently uh, Geb tries to put on that Uraeus, that sun uh, symbol of the Pharaoh himself, mm-hmm. that floating sun crown, but it burns his head and, and, and he is horribly injured by it and, and has to, has to take it off. And then his father Shu has finally recovered um Geb is turned into a boar as punishment. Ooh. And Shu comes down from the heavens and stabs Geb in the thigh with a spear. My goodness. So <laughs> violent ending to that. I should say so. Uh so then cut to the next scene. Um, this leads to the myth of the distant goddess or or the returning goddess, which is a very popular motif in Egyptian religion. And gets told about a few different goddesses. However, 
the most common and and sort of uh, paradigmatic version is with Tefnut. And so the, the basic motif here is there's a goddess who gets angered and leaves Egypt in response and needs to be lured back with offerings and purification. Hmm. So her return can then be celebrated. And this is actually a perfect myth for Tefnut for a couple of reasons. Uh, she is the goddess of moisture, of course, uh, mm -hmm. in a desert land. Egypt, of course, suffered the occasional drought or insufficient flooding of the Nile. Yeah. She's also the goddess of divine truth and justice. So withdrawal of truth and justice is also seen, of course, as, as quite threatening. Sure. And something the Egyptians would have perceived to have happened at, at certain uh, different points. So... And as we have heard, she, she may have had ample reason uh, to be angry and and withdraw. So, for whatever, so Tefnut is angered with her father Ra, either at his failure to defend her from the assault uh, by Geb, or in other versions, uh, Tefnut is actually je jealous of the veneration that is being given to the new generation of gods. Uh, so we we had the first instance of blasting the kids today in history. <laughs> yes. To be followed by many more. <laughs> many more. The first of many. Including uh, very much from this very microphone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. So because she views Set as basically evil, uh, she views Nephthys as as kind of useless. And and to be honest, she, she uh, thinks Cyrus is a little bit of a simp. Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and his wife Isis actually is the only one that she sees is useful among that generation. However, Isis has adopted the epithet, the sweet one, mm. which Tefnut as the goddess of pure water believes should be reserved for herself. Oh. So, so Tefnut gives Ra a bit of an earful mm. uh, and leaves Egypt going south to Nubia, taking moisture with her, causing a drought in Egypt and flooding yeah. In Nubia, and then taking Mahat with her, uh, inviting chaos into Egypt, and perhaps initiating the plot of the 1997 uh, hit Jim Carrey vehicle Liar Liar in sure. Nubia. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. <laughs> no, no one can tell a lie. I'm not sure. Uh, but Ra is also down one of his protective Eye of Ra goddesses because she is one of those. Uh, Ra's angels that yes. sometimes act as the eye of Ra. So, so he's shorthanded at this point. Yeah. She's uh, overseas. Yeah. So he knows he's got to act. Um, yeah. and, and by act, I mean, delegate to someone else to do sure. something. As is his style. Yes. <laughs> As is, so he, he's, he's got, he's got the bark. He's, he's got to be the sun. Yeah. <laughs> his day is full. So, um, in this case, it is Shu, Tefnut's husband and Thoth, uh, the God of wisdom that he sends out, you know, and I should mention here that temp, Tefnut, in her rage, has gone full lioness mode. And in fact, in many versions, she is a fire-breathing lioness oh my. at this point. So in order to approach her stealthily, uh, Shu also goes into lion mode, and Thoth goes into baboon form uh, because she is pledged to attack any men or gods who try and approach her. Okay. Uh, so that way, you know, they can maybe get a little closer with, before they arouse any suspicion. Right. So... Thoth and Shu uh, go into search mode. They split up looking for Tefnut to try and convince her to return to Egypt and bring her attributes back with her. And it is actually Thoth uh, that finds Tefnut first. Um, 
you know, so she's in lioness form. So he uses his uh, soothing, good kitty, kitty, kitty voice. <laughs> uh, one one assumes uh, because in this state, she's not really herself. It, this is kind of a, a Hulk type situation. Ah. She's a little uh, irrational at this at because she's so full of, of rage. Uh, but she recognizes Thoth is not an actual baboon and it's the God of wisdom and, and begins to attack. But Thoth warns her that fate will punish any crime she does. And it's enough. She's rational enough for that to give her some se- second thoughts because even a goddess doesn't want to mess with the fates mm-hmm. as, as, as we've learned. Oh yeah. So there, there's a little back and forth where she transforms into different animals. She tries to get away. He chases after her. Uh, eventually they kind of tire out and Thoth begins to tell her stories about the beauty of Egypt and fables of the strong and the weak allying, including, uh, and I thought this was interesting, uh, the tale of the mouse who saves the lion. And that is where this actually comes, that fable actually comes from, Hmm. uh, this myth. So he promises her that shrines will be built for her, festivals will be held, parades will be held, if she just come back to Egypt. And she's she's not convinced initially, at least. Thoth has to ask her 1,077 times. <laughs> Again, so yes. many large specific numbers. Very specific number. Yes. Uh, and she's still, but she's still not happy about the epithet thing. So Thoth gives her a new epithet. He says, okay, fine. We'll, we'll call you the honorable one. How's that? <laughs> How's that work? And that, that, that she likes it. So uh, brings her around a little bit. And then so Thoth asks her to swear by Shu that mm. she will return. Um, and, she, and he says, she says, uh, make me swear by Ra if you must make me swear. And Thoth says, I know you will not violate an oath by Shu, uh, mm. implying that she would violate one to, to Ra, but but yeah. not, not Thoth. So she's convinced to take a bath in a, in a sacred lake mm. and is transformed back from a lion into her beautiful woman form. Hmm. Well, a beautiful woman with a lion head. Right. Um, and, and the red cocktail dress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then finally, Shu shows up. He, he turns on the charm, you know, uh, and the two fire up the old sistrum, mm-hmm. that, that special ancient Egyptian sex rattle. Yes. And enjoy a little bit of a passionate reunion, as you can imagine. How, I mean, how can you resist when you hear that sound? Right. <laughs> then uh, they head back to Egypt and are greeted by joyously by the people with parades and offerings and festivals. Uh, finally, there's some sort of reconciliation and purification of Geb uh, that goes along with this um, you know, as part of the restoration of Mahat, the divine order and truth. And then there's this temple uh, featuring Tefnut in lion headed form. Uh, in Nubia, actually, and it says, Shu, the son of Ra, rejoices with Geb as Tefnut with her daughter Nut. They are in joy here, eternally, having put an end to rebellion and expelled calamity. So everybody's back, one big happy family. Yep. Um, and that is the story of, of Tefnut, goddess of moisture, lunar goddess, solar goddess, goddess of divine truth. That that would pass for a happy ending, you know. The the, the lion has has her lion, the cubs, and all is right with the world. Yeah, and, and their their family goes on to live happily forever with no internal family. Right, strife. and, and, and <laughs> generations to come just just stuck to their roles, and everything worked out just fine. Yeah, exactly. 
fascinating. That's quite a journey. Yeah, I like it. I like All it. Right. And and uh and came back, came back home. You know, they say you can't go home again, but uh they she did. pulled it off, got yeah. it done. Outstanding. Great. Well, we'll sit with that for a moment, process and uh enjoy a little bit of uh some moisture uh for our, <laughs> our vocal cords and let us get back to our five categories right on the other side of this break. All right. All right, and we are back. So we are here with our five rounds to determine which of these gods is going to go on and get a chance at the ultimate comeback. Yes. And so our first round, as always, is immortal combat, which is simply who would win in a physical confrontation uh, between these two deities. Uh, and I'll, I'll go first, kind of given the rundown on Tefnut. Uh, so Tefnut, you know, I think, her big claim to to combat strength is that she is one of those members of Ra's angels. She she could become the Eye of Ra, um, the fighting combat enforcer of the Great Sun God. Uh, so obvious problem with that is she's not totally acting of her own will mm. in this, uh, but on the will of Ra. And though the Eye maintains some free will in that form uh the way in which the eye form is granted is you know i have to believe has some sort of confirmation by raw to, to grant that power sure uh, gotta sign so, off on that yeah there's there's parameters for sure yeah 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 there's there's forms to fill out there's something <laughs> you know papyrus bureaucracy yeah. right yeah yeah so um but of course she also has her ability to go full lioness mode yeah that's not uh, small with fire breathing capabilities mm -hmm. um you know, like I said, that that form is a little bit of a incredible Hulk vibe, mm -hmm. and that yes, she's very physically powerful, but she's also a little bit out of control mm -hmm. uh, when when she's in that form. Um, you know, and and from the distant goddess, even the power of her voice uh, was fierce. Uh, so, via the Lady of the Water and Flame, hymns to Tefnut, which mm -hmm. is which is a book that is out there. Uh, it says. She let out a piercing roar with the power of her voice. And then the desert opened its mouth and stone spoke with the sand and the mountain shook for two hours <laughs> and the mountains became black and the sun darkened at noon. So she can cause earthquakes. She can cause solar eclipses just with a roar. Wow. So it's obviously pretty, pretty powerful. Yeah. Um, but you know, she's also, as we saw, obviously susceptible to a smooth talking baboon. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, who who among us is not? I was gonna say I, I I could fall victim to that pretty easily too. That's, yeah, uh, yeah. And she had one more form that I, I haven't mentioned. Uh, she apparently is sometimes depicted as a snake with a lion's head. Oh. I don't know what points that wind. I mean, obviously it's scary looking. Yes. I feel like the head maybe is a little out of proportion. <laughs> so it wouldn't be the greatest. <laughs> we, we couldn't form. move. Couldn't slither quite as, uh, as no, dynamically. Yeah, yeah, but but uh, it certainly uh, has a, has a fear factor. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. All right, pretty um, strong case there. Yeah, I you know with, with Osiris, it really depends on the version of him that you get in the fight, because of course in his prime, he's got these divine abilities of, of wisdom. He's a great ruler. We don't 
hear any stories about him conquering because his reign was a very peaceful one. So yeah. he's, he's doing public works projects. He's doing <laughs> arts and culture and he's, you know, he's improving the dietary uh, habits of his <laughs> right, people. Yeah. So, uh, all I think pretty pretty good strong attributes for for an uh, an official uh, for a yeah. leader. Um, I don't know how 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 much that helps you in a fight. <laughs> no. um, and that's the previous version. Now I will say as a footnote for a guy who is renowned for having such wisdom, um, maybe you should have thought twice before getting into that coffin. Party. <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. Let's, let's throw that out there. Uh, but if you get him after that event, you know he's going to be something of a shell of his former self. Man, I mean, he's he's been through a lot. He's been reanimated. He's been cut up and, and re-put together again. So even after at this point, thousands of years after living in the sort of spa that is the uh, the kingdom and in, in the afterlife, I can't imagine even that would fully heal the effect of being uh, having to go through that kind of trauma. Well, yeah, still wearing the the, the mummified uh, bandages, you know, uh, indicates that might be structural. That's, yeah, <laughs> that, that's is, necessary. That's right. I mean, and. Isis has some pretty amazing, amazing magical powers, but clearly it's still holding all that in. So <laughs> either that is just purely a fashion statement once he goes to the afterlife right, or right. there's something there. So I think uh, in terms of pure immortal combat, you know, as wise and as handsome and as fashionable as Osiris is, I think he does not fare terribly well in this category. So I think given uh, given the the sort of ability to rage, given the the really incredible powers of, of voice, uh, and and willingness to to you know, to yeah. act on her hunches, you know, sure the Eye of Ra thing was probably more regulated, but uh, when it came time for her to leave town to head to Nubia, she was on it. She had the yeah. ambition. So I uh, I give Tefnut uh, my vote in this one. Yeah, and I think even even if those uh, bandages aren't structural, I think his fashion choices are just restrictive of his movement and his ability <laughs> that's, to fight. That's true. You're not, you're not going to get your full range of motion if you're even with yeah. a half mummy, uh, the summer yeah, mummy. You, so yeah, yeah you're, you're kind of uh, fighting with with two hands tied in front of your body. So <laughs> you, you kind of have the little weed thresher to kind of try to to wave at your enemy, but that I don't think it's going to get you too far against a. A lioness or a fire-breathing lioness? No, snake body. Yeah, no. I think this yeah, one's I, this is over real fast. I, I, I feel like this is tough nuts round for sure. I mean, not a lot of stories in which people get their ass kicked by their own grandmothers, but uh, <laughs> I think this is one of them. Yeah, definitely. So, all right. So we have a one nothing uh, good start for tough nut, and that yes. moves us on to curriculum deity, uh, which is again, uh, which god would you rather be? Which God would you rather worship? And who has that certain it factor? I'll let you start. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of who we'd rather be, again, there's a difference. There's a tale of two Osiris's here. The front end, you know, highly regarded during his reign, very well respected, well liked by almost everybody, apart from the 72 goons that uh, his brother had to, had to roust up to help overthrow him. Um, so he's very much beloved by his people as a very dedicated spouse. No doubt about that. Yeah. Um, even if his overall family situation was, we'll say a little sticky, but uh, the, the core of his family was very strong. He also, uh, similar to, to Tefnut, had some really great nicknames. So because he was associated with the cycles of renewal and nature and the vegetation, the flooding of the Nile, Osiris was called he who is permanently benign and youthful. Cool. Nice. And, you know, as somebody who uh, had a milestone birthday recently, I can tell you as, as the years go by, I'm becoming less benign and less useful by youthful by the day. So that, that, that sounds like a nice thing to be. Um, that would be very pleasant. The other nickname he had, the one who continues to be perfect. Nice. Which again, not a terribly good fit for, for me, perhaps not even for you, but, uh, so good nicknames, you know, pretty good early round, but in the end, 
all that drama, the coffin, the dismemberment. Uh, I, I don't think I would aspire to live that life. It, it, it yeah. started well, and in fact, arguably ended well with his role in the afterlife. But that part in the middle is uh, it's a lot to get past. In terms of worship, you know, so there were, you wouldn't be surprised that the fertility rites were represented in his big story, the sort of death and resurrection in festivals that were part of his worship. So big two-day festival, they would construct this, what they called an Osiris bed, which which resembled his infamous coffin. Um, they would fill it with soil and seed. They would, they, as that would grow, it would symbolize rebirth. They would then, the, the festival goers would, would perform a, a play that dramatized his murder and dismemberment and the search for his body. So they brought all that back to life. Nice. Now, as you can imagine, kind of a downer of a party. Yeah. <laughs> Plutarch uh, described it as, as gloomy, solemn, and mournful. Um, and a little bit later, according to the 4th century Roman Latin historian Julius Firmicus Maternus, <laughs> it's about as Roman Latin a name as you can get. Yeah, uh, He said that worshipers beat their breasts and gnashed their shoulders. So a real, real bummer of, of a, for opening act to the festival. But like the story itself, the ritual ends on a higher note. It depicts Osiris's triumphant return. As Julius Firmicus Maternus said, when the people pretend that the mutilated remains of the god have been found and rejoined, they turn from mourning to rejoicing. So it sounds like from that point of the party, it's much more enjoyable. There's some weird kind of esoteric things happening inside the temple throughout all this, where they're <laughs> making these wheat paste models of each body part that was dismembered in Osiris. Oh, nice. They put them into a mold. They then bury him for a few days. They make this sort of divine bread and they place it as a, as a oh, silver wow. chest, as an offering to the head of the statue. I guess all this follows the, the book of the dead very clearly, but there's no word on, on sort of what, whether the, the, the dismodered, dismodered, dismembered body bread is like eaten afterward. <laughs> right. Given, you know, do they give, do they make a bread phallus? Is that part of it too? Do they throw that to the fishes? Do they raffle it off? A, a lot of open questions. Yeah. On that. Uh, so, you know, Pretty decent festival, pretty lively. Uh, has its yeah, downsides, has its upsides. But in terms of worshiping, good points for that, and good points for the, as I said, the longevity of the cult, which remained going up until the bitter end in, in the 450s. So yeah. pretty strong case for worship, less of a strong case for who you'd want to be. Yeah, that uh, interesting. So, uh, you know, be, being Tefnut is 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 also complicated. You know, I think uh, the center of her life and, and most stable, positive relationship she has is obviously with her twin brother and and husband shu uh you know they are separated from time to time but it's you know clear that they belong together and they always work hard to get back together um you know have a bit of a jekyll and hyde vibe both with the eye of raw thing and that lioness form uh you know it, it's not 100 percent how much control she has over that transformation mm. Mm. which i think is a bit of a problem like in that story you know she's arguing with with uh, raw and it sort of like just becomes so enraged that she transforms and has to to flee uh egypt so at least that's one way to, to to read it um you know and i didn't really mention it in her section but as a primordial uh deity uh eventually tefnut does retire from the earth mm. uh, and she joins raw on that solar bark both her her her, her and shu uh, go along for for the uh, the solar bark ride. So they're uh, the they're, they're the fellow commuters in the uh, the journey of the sun every day in their retirement. Yes, uh, uh, on both both up in the up in the sky, at least the sky part of it. Uh, Tefnut and Shu are are always depicted uh, in that part. In terms of of worship, uh, 
Tefnut was usually worshipped together with uh, Shu, uh, that couple cult centers uh, focused in a couple cities on them. Uh, chief among them is the town uh, Leontopolis, uh, which is the Greek name for the town, literally meaning town of the lions, hmm. uh, because they were the lion deities. Um, and Heliolopolis, which uh, was the center of raw worship, also had uh, some, some Tefnut. Uh, worship going on uh so there were three types of worship that i found for uh, a tefnet devotee <laughs> in heliopolis uh there was mainly uh as part of the aeneid uh, which is the collection of the nine main egyptian gods sort of like uh egyptian olympians mm-hmm. uh, but they had nine of them and then there were festivals dedicated to tefnet that celebrated her return as part of that distant goddess uh, you not a large amount of detail there, but uh, there were you know large community seasonal festivals and parades uh, with a beer garden and and, and such. Sure. And then uh, there were also these remote shrines all around the edge of Egypt uh, that were kind of like outpost outposts uh, dedicated to return or maybe outposts on the lookout for her leaving in case she <laughs> needed to be brought back. Sure, <laughs> so it wouldn't take some. So long. Uh, and then I, I found some offerings that were suggested uh, for, for Tefnut online. Water. Naturally. Uh, yep. uh, lion figures. Green moss agate, which I guess is a stone. Uh, hmm. Sapphires. Sea salt. Uh, a pear. And a blue topaz. So th- those okay. are things that if you, you know, if you're into uh, Tefnut, those are things you want to want to give. So kind, yep, of, kind of an interesting one as well here. So yeah, I don't not, know. not nearly I don't... as exotic as a bunch of like bread body parts, but uh, <laughs> no, no, it's, a little it's, fancier. But I like it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So it's it's interesting. You know, you have that attack by by Geb, and then in the middle, also not not great, given that is her son. Um, yeah. So uh, this, this is a tough one. Yeah, no easy answer on this one. I, I, as as entertaining as the worship part of it is, I think the the torture of being Osiris. Uh, makes it a less appealing option. That yeah. even with even with some of the things that uh, Tefnut had to go through, I think she still gets the better uh, the better life to live if you have that choice. Right. Well, I think it's my vote. Yeah. So I think it's interesting, like how one weighs. I really think about the that afterlife part mm. uh, down there. Um, you know, is he is he just barely holding it together as sort of <laughs> semi zombie, <laughs> or or you know, is is he more? Uh, of a regal uh, uh, Hades in a nicer neighborhood. Yeah, I feel like because he's got the 42 judges doing all the work, I feel (laughs) like he's really much more of a figurehead. And the fact that he was forced to take that job because he couldn't take his old one suggests to me it's uh, more like a professor emeritus who sort of still (laughs) keeps a little office in the corner, but uh, doesn't really, really do much. Yeah. All right. uh, Interesting. I I think I'm going to join you with uh, Tefna. Yeah. So uh, Tefna's got to... uh, Tefnut has got two to nothing. Yeah. And good start. Are, yeah, good start for her. But we are now headed into our third round, which is Good God. And that is simply who has the better character. Yes. So I'll, I'll go first on this one. And, you know, not a huge amount to go on here for Tefnut. Uh, but I think if, if we start off with the service that the deity provided, obviously moisture is a big one. Yeah. All life fan. on earth is only yeah. possible with that. So that's that's a good. 
Um, you know, she didn't do a lot to to make it happen. It just sort of uh, came out of her. Um, but then there's her side gig as Mahat, who was the goddess of truth and divine order. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, besides being sort of a symbolic representation, uh, she's a spokesperson uh, for for truth. And the only thing else I could find is that uh, she provided the feather that was used uh, for weighing against an individual soul. So when someone died, uh, their life would be weighed against a feather. Yes. Uh, so, you know, important duty there. She's sort of like uh, the head of afterlife weights and measures. <laughs> make, make sure very... that the feather was the proper weight for weighing of souls. <laughs> I mean, that is a that is a unusually bureaucratic role, but why not? Someone's yeah. got to do it. Yeah, someone, someone does have to do it. And I, apparently she did it well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, you know, the, you know, the main mythology about Tefnut is that returning goddess mythology where her absence causes drought and chaos in Egypt, you know, and, and our, our longest time listeners may recall that we dinged uh, Demeter or Demeter uh, in season one for threatening the world with starvation. If her daughter Persephone was not. Yeah, that's her. right. Uh, but this is a little different in that it seems more like it was a instinctive emotional response to storm off. Uh, so it's not as though she was particularly, you know, holding people uh, hostage, or at least it doesn't a hundred percent seem like. Right. That. Right. To me, it uh, was very much a bargaining chip. It was, uh, it yeah. was in order to secure leverage. Whereas in this case, that's right. There were emotional factors involved first and foremost. I think, I think you're right. Yeah. But, you know, and having this Hulk side is, you know, something to consider with, with her character. She has a little bit of a, a side to her that is, a little more out of control and, yes. and rageful. So, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think the pretty strong points for Osiris in terms of character. I mean, you've got in his reign, you've got that being synonymous with, with truth, justice, and peace, always doing his best for his subjects, even in, in potential misstep, missteps where he had that affair with the other sister, you know, he had a pretty, <laughs> pretty good defense of, well, she was in disguise as my real sister. Yeah. yeah that's, uh, you know, the only dark side, I think, and of course, he's rather hapless and just doing his best to, to keep himself together in, in the, the, the middle part of his life. But in the afterlife, you know, it was a pretty brutal place. And, and, you know, you have this sort of if you didn't do well, you've got that brutal end and having your soul fed to Ahmed. So assuming you're not a fan of being annihilated by a hippo, lion, crocodile, soul eating thing, you know, not not a a rough place to be. That right. said, based on your comment before, it's not clear whether Osiris was really doing much to pull the strings or if that was just the system he was sort of overseeing in more of a benign right. way. So uh, I, I give I give Osiris a lot of credit going through a lot, maintaining that sense of values, you know, having, you know, where he he loses some some potency in the in, in, in immortal combat for not really having the the experience in fighting and conquering. Right, right. The good part of that is because he was a peaceful ruler and had a very good reign. So. I think character-wise, I do. I do think he gets the edge for me in this category. Yeah, I think I think I agree with you. I think uh, you know, getting rid of cannibalism. You know, yeah, I mean, <laughs> hard to argue with that. That's <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's going to the, the win, game. going in the win column. So <laughs> that's right. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I'm going to go with you. So that brings us to two to one. Okay, uh, Tefnut's still in the lead, but uh, two more categories left. Yeah. Uh, the next one is iconography. And uh, I'll let you take this one. This is 
uh, who has the better legacy, who, who's more influential. Yes. And and pretty pretty strong case for Osiris here, at least in terms, you know, we know these Egyptian gods don't have as not quite as much of the cultural cachet as some of the Greco-Roman figures, but Osiris turns out pretty well. But of course, first and foremost, setting the tone for the fashion statement of being a mummy is is really got to got to be the lead headline here. The first to dress in that fine Egyptian linen uh, that we're so familiar with now. So, Andrew, next time you're out gallivanting by the shore in Martha's Vineyard for the summer wearing your yeah. best linens, you'll have Osiris to thank for that. Um, we talked about the the trend setting in terms of the pharaoh beard, fake beards. Yeah. Osiris was very much behind that all the way through to Lincoln Park. Um, you know, name-wise, he's got a connection to some of the typical astronomy stuff. You know, he's got an asteroid named after him. There's a lunar crater. There's also a planet called Osiris. Now, okay. it is an extrasolar planet, so it's not in our astronomical neighborhood. Yeah. Um, but it is. it was discovered recently, 1999. It has an atmosphere that's got familiar things, hydrogen, carbon, oxygen. It's also very big. It is 200 times the size of our Earth, so plenty of room on Osiris, the planet. And at the same time, it's 159 light years from here. So it's unlikely that uh, either of us will be visiting anytime soon. It's pretty far no. away. And we can all agree, though, Osiris is a much cooler name than its original designation for the planet, HD209458B. So definitely <laughs> a step up. Yeah. Uh, also, the name, Osiris is the name of an optical spectrometer in Spain. So it's an instrument to measure light as part of this big telescope uh, program they have there. The full name is Optical System for Imaging and Low-Resolution Integrated Spectroscopy. So OSIRIS is actually an acronym. They found a way to make it. <laughs> so the name is acronym. Now, I don't know how that works in Spanish, but it's still pretty impressive. So yeah. uh, that's pretty good. Less impressive is the character of OSIRIS in the DC comics. Now, we're talking about a minor character. OSIRIS is the brother-in-law of Black Adam. <laughs> Now that is right. that is talk about you know low grade. I mean, I'm not sure that even gets you invited to like Superman's birthday party or <laughs> like if Batman has a as a backyard barbecue. I don't even know if you're on the guest list. So very much a, a low player in the DC comic universe. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have a heavy metal band uh, from not too far from here, Palatine, Illinois, uh, called Born of Osiris. Uh, checked out mm-hmm. a couple of their songs. Uh, you know, not really my style, but uh, very very metal, very yeah. very hard. Uh, Osiris is also the name of an unincorporated community in Cedar County, Missouri. Now, according to the website Wikipedia, here is the extent of the history of this unincorporated county, and I am quoting, a post office called Osiris was established there in 1901 and remained in operation until 1906. (laughs) That's it. That's the history. So not much of a legacy there. So, Yeah, you know, we once, uh, you know, had a post office like 100 years ago and lasted for five years so not exactly befitting the uh the stellar reputation of the show me state but no. there it is there's osiris in missouri uh so a fairly broad range of, of cultural influences from uh from big to small but not not a bad showing i'd say yeah not not bad so this this one uh i'm gonna be honest this was a little bit of a struggle <laughs> yeah uh tefnut's a little on the obscure side <laughs> yes uh here in the modern i've uh, been very much looking forward to this category to see what you're, you're so nice so uh you know there, there's, you know, we may talk about the Pharaoh Akhenaten at some point. Uh, he was a Middle King, Kingdom Pharaoh, uh, famous or infamous for rejecting all of the other Egyptian gods other than Aten. Mm. Um, but his wife Nefertiti, uh, there's a famous bust, and if you think you haven't seen it, you, you Google it. It's the Queen Nefertiti bust. You, you'll recognize it. Yeah. But uh, she is being depicted, some believe, as Tefnut. 
oh. in that. So even though no one knows it, <laughs> other than but a we few know Egyptian uh, Egyptologists, and it is contested among them, mm. it's something. So, uh, so between you, me, and our millions of listeners, now others will know. Yes, now they'll know. Um, so there is the Tefnut Ice Lolly. And this is a Swedish sour beer uh, that is described as tasting like pineapple smoothie with salt and vanilla. Huh. So uh, there is a Tefnut Appliances in New Delhi, India. Okay. <laughs> Great. There is a holding company in the Cayman Islands called Tefnut. Yeah. That's so some... again, totally above board. <laughs> yeah. Totally above board. <laughs> I couldn't even find a crypto uh, for it. So. <laughs> Uh, so Maritz Grossman makes Tefnut men's luxury watch that, quote, reflects a decidedly reduced form vocabulary and straightforward development process. OK, I, I've been kind of getting into watches lately, so I'll have to look into that. Yeah, yeah. a reduced form vocabulary mm. for the watch. So the watch doesn't say much. Doesn't say um, much. Yeah. And then, so she appears as a character in some of the, will become the usual suspects for this season uh, in the Moon Knight and the Gods of Egypt. And, but sadly, I could not find any YA fiction or romance <laughs> novels on Tefnut, uh, nor, nor, nor could I find uh, any holsters. So. Oh, well, our fans will be very disappointed <laughs> to find that. Or, or it just represents a market opportunity for some enterprising yeah. author. Or holster manufacturer. <laughs> yeah, so there you well, have it. Uh, as impressive as your research was, <laughs> I think uh, I think pound for pound, I think Osiris has to has to win the category on this one, from my view. Although I will say that Swedish sour beer does not sound that bad. I would give it a no, try. No. Uh, if, if it were, yeah, I was hoping it would. I realized it was in Sweden, but I think that it is uh, emblematic that we had to go all the way to to Sweden. <laughs> Uh, India and the Cayman Islands. To yeah. Find anything. <laughs> uh, so I, I think I, I'm. Gonna... Yeah. If 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 my wife came home in the kitchen and there was a there was a Tefnut appliance from New Delhi, I'm not sure I'd be thrilled with that. <laughs> a bottle of that Swedish sour in the fridge, much better. But uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's. I believe it's just a appliance repair company. Oh, oh not <laughs> even the appliance repair manufacturer. Okay, even better. <laughs> I think so. Maybe you'll send them out there, but uh, no, I'm going to go with Osiris uh, on this one. So that brings us what to two to two. We have two to a, two, and it all comes down to deadlock. as it should <laughs> matinee idol. Yes, uh, or let me say it properly, matinee idol, hmm. uh, where uh, we have our own versions of movies or limited series and decide which which god would make the better movie or limited series, and, and therefore which one gets to move on. Uh, to have a chance to come back and help save us all. Yes. So um, I'll go first on this one. And uh, there were a couple of different ways I thought about going here. Um, you know, that relationship with her brother, husband, shoe, obviously is pretty central uh, to her story. So I thought, thought of sort of a, a blue lagoon meets flowers in the attic sort of story. <laughs> um, but, and th there's some cringe to that, so yeah, uh, in in both directions. So again, I'm I'm gonna go with the more adventurous part of the story, and that is that returning godness goddess part. So, in this, uh, Princess Tefnut has always been the perfect sweet daughter, princess betrothed 
uh, girlfriend to Prince Shu, who, who she loves. Uh, but she also has a secret rageful side that she has channeled into being the defender of the realm as a warrior assassin. So her father, the king, has, has taken for granted both these capacities and slighted her in various ways. And in addition, you know, living that double life has meant that she's had to conceal, not feel, full rage, emotions, form. Uh, so, of course, at a high-pressure formal ball, she finally cracks, lashes out at the king, sprays fire out of her mouth, burning down a whole wing of the castle, and then flees into the night, uh, perhaps singing a song. uh the the king realizes you know he's lost his fiercest warrior as well as his daughter and it soon becomes apparent that without the princess the kingdom is cursed to an eternal summer drought Mm. uh so he sends shu out to find her along with his wisest advisor uh who happens to be a baboon They have some comic adventures along the way looking for her. We also cut to Princess Tefnut having her own violent scrape, sort of a dark night style against brigands, ne'er do wells, uh, followed by a constant driving storm. Uh, finally, coming together uh, where the disguised prince and, and wise man uh, have to defend themselves from the princess while convincing her to return to the kingdom. Uh, which she does just in time to save the king from a dragon named Apophis or something. <laughs> or something. <laughs> you know, and and, and then uh, a couple songs and everyone lives happily ever after. I'm, so, of course, you may, may have guessed that I, I'm thinking of this in uh, more of a Disney-style animation. Yeah, the couple of songs here and there. It seemed a little <laughs> bit discourse with the tone of the Dark Knight, but uh, yeah, now it's starting to come together. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so... Um, and and that's that's what I have. And and then as the voice of Tefnut, I I had uh Lily Reinhardt, star of Riverdale, along with Cole Sprouse, also star of Riverdale as Shu. I, I always admire that your your casting choices are much more current than present day than mine. <laughs> uh well done. Right. Yeah, I, I I was hoping that the, the, the baboon advisor would, would borrow a little bit of comic relief from me, the kind of every which way but loose uh canon. <laughs> but I suppose that was a chimpanzee, but you know. Yeah, yeah. They're actors. They can, they can. It could be. I know. And I went back. It could be done live action. Hmm. I, I, you know, at, at Disney these days they do them both. Yeah, so. that's right. Yeah, wait twenty years, let John Favreau whip it up in live action. It's fine. Yeah. So. Very good. Well, for Osiris, you know, we've worked through in in the now seventeen installments of this program over over the course of time. We worked through a lot of genres in this in this yeah. category: rom coms, musicals, uh, thrillers. Detective stories. Given the extreme weirdness of the Osiris story, I wanted to explore something we haven't done. Kind of an experimental film, kind of some art house fare. Um, so it, it really it really hones in on the, the second death of Osiris, where okay. of course, memorably, his 14 body parts are scattered throughout the land. So in this in this film, we follow her, his devoted wife Isis as she goes on the hunt, um, going door to door throughout the land to recover those body piece, parts and, and piece her husband back together. So each segment kind of is, is almost like a little short film connected throughout um, where she finds a body part in question, but as to persuade the, the keeper of the body part to give it up, uh. which is more difficult than you might think. The problem is these are body parts of a God. And so they have special abilities even on their own. 
And because they're all green, everybody knows, all right, this is a special body part that we can do something right. with. So we follow each of these body parts through the stories of where they've landed and how they've made a real difference in the communities where they wound up. So for instance, Osiris's left hand, it turns out, is able to play the sistrum, that rattle-like instrument that the ancient Egyptians found so stimulating. Not only play it, but play it at a virtuoso level. And this is like the yo-yo ma of the sistrum, just, <laughs> just the left hand. And it never tires because it's a god. So it just plays this rattle, this erotic rattle 24-7. So you can imagine the small town that came upon it is enjoying this whole different level of sustained romantic passion they've never <laughs> felt before and, and not willing to give that up easily. So yeah. it's a tough sell. Um, I mean, come on, listen to that sound. Who can resist 24-7? In another segment, the right leg of Osiris is discovered in a different town and it's, it's learned that it can play soccer. <laughs> At the level of like the best, Ronaldo, Pele, Messi, like it is, it is a soccer prodigy on its own, just the leg. So we then follow this local team, you know, from kind of down in its luck. It's, it's, it's lovable loser reputation, but they're about to turn it upside down because they have this leg on the team and, and they're going to make a run for, I don't know, the Egypt cup or whatever. <laughs> and I, I'm assuming that there must've been some kind of version of soccer back then. I, sure, I mean, sure. presumably they were using the, the head of a goat for, for the ball. <laughs> so we'll, we'll call it goat ball. Uh, so this ragtag bunch of goat ballers is not going to let go of that uh, of that leg anytime soon. So again, it's going to be a tough sell. It won't be an, an easy get for Isis. So throughout, she starts by playing nice, as is very much in her character. But because it gets harder and harder to extract these, these body parts, she has to start using her divine magics, or at least has to start playing dirty, extract them by force. And each chapter, she just gets darker and darker. We watch her break bad in, in the process, turning from, from our, our lovable, lovable, plucky heroine to sort of an anti-heroine by the end. Now, she is a god. She has black magic, manages to do it, of course. And at the very end, she's able to piece back Osiris back together through this combination of magic and, of course, mummification. We get a really nice cinematic climax. We get, you know, physical and emotional release, some special effects probably. But, of course, there's a loose end. And, and, and here's where yeah. it gets real artsy. We'll recall that the, the royal unit uh, was not recovered in the story right. because it was, of course, thrown into the Nile to be eaten by a fish. Well, in the final segment of the film, there's one fish swimming in the right place at the right time in the Nile. He spots this green phallus that comes into the river, takes it for, you know, a, a sea, sea cucumber or like <laughs> a large piece of plankton, whatever, chomps it right up. And But like the other body parts in the beginning of the film, this too comes with divine power. So this lucky fish, by eating the phallus, ends up gaining super strength and speed, transforms into a great white shark who's also immortal. And remember, sharks have to keep moving. So this thing is going to move endlessly to try to keep this, make itself alive, maintain its immortality. So we follow the shark in montage over decades, and it's hundreds of years, then thousands of years, as it continues to venture forth in search of new waters. Then one day at the very end, the shark gets close to land once more. And through his divine sense of smell, he detects something he hasn't experienced in millennia. Yes, it's the scent of fine Egyptian linen. <laughs> so he pokes up his head. We pull back to reveal he has landed in Martha's Vineyard, 1975, with full of tourists and salty boatmen dressed in their summer linens, and we realize this whole film, our entire journey over thousands of years, has all been a prequel to Jaws. <laughs> Let me cut to black. Um, 
and that is Pieces of Me coming to a theater near <laughs> you. Now, I'm, I'm picturing uh, as Isis, who really is kind of the main character of this, Gal Gadot, yeah. of course. Um, you know, she's Israeli, but kind of brings a certain sort of Middle Eastern flair. We know from her performance as Wonder Woman, she can be both very charming, but also kick ass if she needs to. Obviously, as Osiris, it's a, it's a minor role because it really is just about the body parts coming together for that climactic scene. Um, certainly something Paul Giamatti, I think, could accomplish really well. <laughs> <laughs> he's not Middle Eastern, but he will be in in full green face, so I think he can still pull it off. Totally fine. Uh, and obviously, as a young Jaws, you know, and we see that final journey at the end, who else but an AI-generated version as the voice actor of he who could voice animals and beasts like no other, the late, great Gilbert Gottfried, who, <laughs> in the final line, do I smell uh, Egyptian linen? Of course he does. Of course and that is... Do. uh that is pieces right. of me. Yeah. Pieces of me. You know, interesting. I, I thought you were going to go uh, with that as a limited series because you just each you have sort of uh body part of the week. <laughs> that could very each, much work. Yeah. Each I, town you go, it's a 14 uh, episode series, uh, which, which ends in that Jaws, you know, body part of the week, go to a different town. Yeah. Sort of like a people. Columbo kind of thing where the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that could work too. We'll, we'll leave that as part of the development deal when we, when we pitch it to the networks. Right. 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 So, all right. Um, this is a tough one. So, yeah. you know, I, I think I'm going to go with Osiris on this one. I think that that, uh, art house feel, uh, is, is interesting enough. Uh, to to go to go with that one, um, maybe was so a little bit derivative about my my version of Tefna. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's it's a Disney style animation. You've got to you've got to stick to the genre to some extent. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I I think I think I will I will join you. I think uh, not just because it's a, it really does tell an unusual and epic journey, but you know, it's people love prequels. People like rebooting IP, and if and there's nothing that Hollywood won't love more than another Jaws <laughs> installment. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I, th- I think I join you on that. I think uh, right. Cyrus takes the cake in a, in a razor sharp finish. Then razor sharp finish and a, an incredible comeback down o yes. two. Yeah, uh, to to come back and and win uh, three to two, win the golden ale. That is right. That is right. For season two, not ale. the golden apple anymore. Very good. Well, what a long, strange trip this has been, Andrew. Uh, you know, once again, proving uh, chat GPT, artificial intelligence, they can't touch this. This is just no. good old-fashioned human ingenuity and storytelling. <laughs> it's finest. And it's finest. Spanning, yeah, thousands spanning of years, millennia. Yeah. Yes. Very good. Well, well done. Uh, as always, of course, our thanks to Andy Snow for the theme yeah. song. As always, we, uh, we refer you to our Spotify playlist where... Each week or each installment, we uh, add a couple new songs that relate right. back to the episode and look, look for that. And of course, you know, as always, like, subscribe, tell your friends, leave a positive review. Yeah, yeah I've been told that that word of mouth is really the, the lifeblood of <laughs> of independent podcasters. So I think that is hard to argue with. Yes. So don't just tell a friend about it. Tell them to listen to to it hold them down if you need to <laughs> yes if you have the strength to hold down this other person for at least 90 minutes straight strongly encouraged yes. all right well we'll be back with uh, episode three in short order but thank you everybody for listening andrew uh always a joy always a pleasure thank yeah. you and uh thank you folks we'll uh, right. see you next time bye bye